We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. I come from the world of, of, of creative directing and marketing. And so I didn't really know the rules of, you know, writers are like, you're supposed to have this, this, and this. I didn't know. So instead I put together like a 90 page visual compendium of like all of my movie references and the cinema and the history of horror and what I wanted to feel like and who the actors were like. And so that's what I did. And uh, long story short, I ended up getting connected with Miri Yoon, uh, executive producer with Roy Lee or at Vertigo. And it was an instant connection. And uh, the interesting part of this is when I wrote the pilot, I like to kind of write little just wishes, just like, like mood board, kind of vision board things into my phone. Finished the pilot, I wrote into my phone from executive producer Lena Waithe, and then I forgot about it. So then seven months later, I'm sitting with Miri. She's like, who do you want as your collaborator? And I'm like, just kind of as a dare. I'm like, Lena, just to see like what you're going to do about it. And she's like, hold. And then like three days later, she's like, all right, you're sitting down with Lena in three days. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what the fuck? I didn't mean it. Uh, and so we did. And then I sat down with Lena and I was honestly, it was from day one. It was like we were making the show together from that brunch. She's exactly what you think. She walks the walk. She was a champion of me from like second one. Um, and then we went into Amazon and sold it. Them is an extraordinary new Amazon Prime show about a black family in the 1950s who integrates a white neighborhood that we now know as Compton, California, and finds their white neighbors freaking out, which happened to the extent that they make their lives into a virtual horror film. I love this show. I am freaked out by it. I am captivated and engrossed by it. I cannot get enough. I'm talking to the creator, Little Marvin, who was a creative director who decided, I want to do that. I want to be a screenwriter. Quit his job, moved to LA, found his way into Hollywood, wrote this show, and found a way to get it made. We're going to talk about how to chase your dream of being a screenwriter, how to write a show, how to create something that gets a green light, and the nuances of this hot, new, compelling terror show, horror show, them. For half of this episode, stay right here. You can get it for free for the whole thing, for the whole 60, 70-minute conversation, which gets deep and amazing. Go to patreon.com slash show for just $5 a month. You get four Patreon exclusives on Friday and the 60-minute versions of our Wednesday shows, and you get to help support our team 
as we grow and keep trying to make this show. Let's get into it. It's Little Marvin talking about them on Torre Show. Congratulations, man. The show is hot. <laughs> Thank you, man. <laughs> I watched four episodes last night, and you know, I was really sucked in because you call it a horror movie, a horror show, and it is a horror show, but it's very realistic. So it's like the life of black people in America dealing with white supremacy is a horror film. Right. You're not you're not diving into any like horror films or horror TV shows. There's often a supernatural element. The vic, the villain is coming out of your dreams or out of the sewer. There's none of that. The villains <laughs> are the white people who live across the street. <laughs> They're not in the sewer. <laughs> no. And, and you're yeah. setting it in the Great Migration. And there's an interesting twist in that it's set in Compton, but mm-hmm. when Compton was white. And it's kind of like the decade before Compton turns, because by the 60s, Compton is black. Correct. Right? Yep. But this is like yep. the first black family to move into. Tell me where this idea begins in you. Is this like your parents' story of like migrating to Compton? Uh, not to Compton. My father's family did migrate from uh, from uh, Alabama to, to Massachusetts uh, during the migration. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. My family... Migrated from Columbiana, Alabama to Boston, Massachusetts. Wait, are you telling me that we're related here? Is this going to be some sort of. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it could happen. Know. It could happen. Amazing. It'd be really good for rating. That's amazing. Alabama but, to Massachusetts was not quite a, pi- a pipeline. <laughs> it literally was not. It was your then, family and mine. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Where in Massachusetts, where is your family? Worcester. Worcester. Okay. We were. My dad's family was really in like Jamaica Plain, although they okay. lived in Brooklyn too. But like, it's it's interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay, so so your dad and then yeah, moved first to. Let me, before Boston. I say anything else, I just have to say it's an honor to be here. I You're am so sweet. a huge fan of everything you do, so thank you for having me. So let thank me you. get that out first. But uh, truly, the 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 first entry point for this for me was exploring terror was exploring my own feelings of terror, my own anxieties and insecurities, and frankly, rage, if we're allowed to say, (laughs) about about just navigating this country in black skin. And it's a terror I think we can all relate to, but it's a terror and a gaze that stretches all the way back to the the foundings of this country. So exploring that was sort of the first piece Secondarily, I've been thinking about this country and I've been thinking about the American dream and and that there's nothing sort of more emblematic of that dream in my eyes anyway than the dream of owning one's home. It's a point of great pride for particularly for black folks in this country. And and it's the beginning of building wealth. So we'll get into the racial wealth gap. Yes, it is the absolutely the beginnings of, of building wealth. And when you're systemically shut out of that and disenfranchised from that from the very dawn of the housing market, what are you left with? So Kind of interrogating the nightmare beneath that American dream of, of homeownership was really the jumping off point. I mean, I know my parents were the first black family to move into the neighborhood that they that they still live in. My father is gone, but my mother is still in the same house. Yeah. Um, and there was one family that uh, circulated a petition 
to keep them from moving in and nobody else would sign it. That's that just yours. And we ended up being buddies with them. And it was like, not a lingering thing. I, you know, I felt welcome in the, in the neighborhood, but I do remember a rock coming through the window once when I was little. So nothing near what your family's going through, what the family and them is going through, but that sort of attack from the neighbors is yeah. real. It's, it's not only real, it's, it's actually quite sobering. I mean, I, to, to know the extent to which it was happening all across the country. I, I think that was the most illuminating and sobering piece of this for me is that these are terror tactics that would be at home in the Jim Crow South. We wouldn't bat an eye if this was a story in the South. Oh, I've seen that. What was shocking to me was to see these like sort of beautiful, you know, pastel colored suburbs in sunny Southern California where there are crosses being burned on lawns, where there are nails being put on driveways, where there are epithets being burned into your front lawn. When Nat King Cole and his family moved into Hancock Park, I'm sure you know this, in 1948-1949, the property owners, homeowners association tried desperately to stop it from happening. First, they tried to buy the house to keep them out. That didn't work. Next thing they did was burn the N-word onto the front lawn. That didn't work. They actually ended up throwing a piece of poison steak over the fence and killing the family dog. I don't know if you know this. This is the this is truth. This is why when people see oh that wouldn't happen, I'm like there's actually nothing I could make up that's worse than something that actually occurred. Well, this- and then that family, what I have to say about that, the the Cole family stayed in that house for the next thirty years. This is the part that to me is was the key in was the sort of the the just fuck you. <laughs> this is yeah. our homeness of yeah. it all. That yeah. was the thing. But yeah. I mean, like my God, can you imagine? feeling unsafe and you allude to this is one of the songs ending one of the episodes like you want to feel safe in your home and in that situation you can't there's this great moment early on in this season when all the ladies who live in the neighborhood because it's like the 50s so it's very traditional that the husbands go off to work and the ladies do not and the ladies all grab chairs and desks and line up in front of the black home and they play music on these little transistor radios, but everyone's playing a different song and station, right? So it becomes this cacophony and they just sit there sort of staring daggers at the home. And it's this sort of, I mean, I guess a screenwriter, it's this brilliant way of attacking that is cinematic, Mm -hmm. that you can feel the pain. It doesn't happen quickly. So you have to sort of live in it. Um, I mean, talk about that, that scene in that moment. Yeah. I mean, that, well, you just said it very eloquently. I mean, that really for us was about, uh, the sort of the slow drip, drip water torture of it all. Right. Like it's not, again, these weren't tactics that were used that just sort of like, you know, we're going to burn the house down on day one. It was never like that. It was actually just like a slow every day. There was something methodical. I think it's the LA Urban League that determined there were about 26 or 27, I might be wrong about the number, points of terror. These are like, they actually identified, here's what white folks do (laughs) when black folks integrate neighborhoods. And it was like, bang, 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 as if there was like a handbook for doing it, you know? And like, again, to the point of like, nothing I can make up, I think about, um, uh, Dr. Emery Hestis Holmes, who moved into Pacoima with his family in like 1955, I want to say. And all of these same things happened. It got to a degree where they were sending, his neighbors were sending um, an undertaker uh, to the house with a hearse to pick up the bodies, uh, in quotes, was what they were doing. It got to such a degree that he had to file a civil lawsuit against them in, in 1960, and he won. Um, so, again, 
everywhere you looked across the Southland, but across the country, these sorts of terror tactics were happening. As a black person in the world, I am constantly traumatized by the news, right? You know, yes, watching the, the Chauvin trial and, you know, somebody will get shot and it'll be recorded in any day now and we'll be traumatized. So you, you're constantly sort of feeling that thing. So, and quite often folks, when they come to the television, they want a respite okay. from the pain. Sure. You as a screenwriter said- no, I'm going to take that and go further in. Why go in It's a, that it's a gamble, Tora. It's a gamble. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Uh, listen, I like the Great British Bake Off like anybody else. That is my comfort. I go that. I go there when I want to be comforted. Uh, I will say that with our show, you know, what I hadn't seen particularly in something during this uh time period. Uh, there's a tendency, I think, to almost trap these stories in amber so that it feels like something of the past. It's got to remove. It feels very staid. People feel very noble in the face of these things. And so what's lacking to me sometimes is a sense of the psychological complexity of what it feels like. These were always human beings on the receiving end of this terror, right? I think of Ruby Bridges on her way to school at six or seven years old, flanked by U.S. Marshals. Mm-hmm. You've got adult middle-aged white folks screaming into her face, screaming invective into a child's face. That was a child. And so for me, what's been missing, I think, from these narratives, or at least what I've wanted to, the ambition anyway, was to give a sense of what it feels like to be on the receiving end of that, emotionally, psychologically, physically. What does that do to your mind? What does that do to your spirit? Um, it is obviously a gamble because we're all going through torture in our own way right now. I know. I, <laughs> turn, on, I turn on your show and I'm stressed the fuck out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> great British Bake Off. Until you watch an episode of us, then go to that. Go back to us. Go to that. <laughs> Tell me. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. 
Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, tell us how, because some of the folks who, who listen to the show and some of the folks who make the show want to put television shows on the air. So walk us through the path from the idea first sort of appearing to you to the steps you took to get a green light from Amazon. Yeah, I mean, it was not, uh, I don't know what a normal process is, frankly, because I, I don't think anyone has, a, there's not one way to do this. But I, I would say that I became obsessed with this. And I had quit my job. I was a marketing executive, a creative director. I dreamed of being a writer for many, many years, but it just didn't feel like a profession. It felt like a pipe dream. Uh, but the dream never went away. So I did what I would suggest no one do. I put myself up for a promotion at work with the onus being, if they gave it to me, I would put the dream of writing away. If they didn't, uh, I would quit my job immediately, go to LA and not give up until I was a paid TV writer. So spoiler, did not get the job. Flew cross country, just hunkered down, locked myself in a room and obsessed on it until I was done. Um, and How then long I, was that process that you were writing? And what did you write? One? Or did you write a season or just one? Or what did you write? I wrote the pilot. Um, and then in addition to the pilot, I put together, I come from the world of, of, of creative directing and marketing. And so I didn't really know the rules. I've, you know, writers are like, you're supposed to have this, this, and this. I didn't know. So instead, I put together like a 90-page visual compendium of like all of my movie references and the cinema and the history of horror and what I wanted it to feel like and who the actors were like. And so that's what I did. And, uh, and you know, long story short, I ended up getting connected with Miri Yoon, uh, executive producer with Roy Lee over at Vertigo. And it was an instant connection. And uh, the interesting part of this is when I wrote the pilot, I like to kind of write little just wishes, just like, like mood board, kind of vision board things into my phone. Finished the pilot, I wrote into my phone from executive producer Lena Waithe, and then I forgot about it. So then seven months later, I'm sitting with Miri. She's like, who do you want as your collaborator? And I'm like, just kind of as a dare. I'm like, Lena, just to see like what you're going to do about it. And she's like, hold. And then like three days later, she's like, all right, you're sitting down with Lena in three days. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what the fuck? I didn't mean it. Uh, and so we did. And then I sat down with Lena and I was honestly, it was from day one. It was like we were making the show together from that brunch. She is exactly what you think. She walks the walk. She was a champion of me from like second one. Um, and then we went into Amazon and sold it. How, well, but you yada yada the the bisque. Like, we, we <laughs> what what, what did I yada yada over? We 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 went to Amazon and sold it. Like that that's that's not like easy. It's not. It's not. No, nothing about it is. That's the thing about it. I think sometimes people hear the story and they think like, what did you, you just pull up at Amazon on the day they were handing out two season orders out the back of a truck? <laughs> uh, no, like there, there was work. There's lots of steps, man. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of time. Th things don't all happen like right like that. Although I will say from the minute that Lena and Miri were involved, I mean, I had my process of like writing and just pounding the pavement, trying to get people to read it. That's that process. But then when you get the right producer on board, 
it takes on another life beyond you. Um, I mean, I like what you're saying in terms of I had no plan B. And none. to succeed in a creative endeavor, you got to be like that. I have to say, yes, because in my 20s, like I wanted all of this exactly. You can probably tell from what's happening here. I'm not in my 20s anymore. And <laughs> when I was in my 20s, I, when the going got rough, I ran. It was like the minute something was hard, I'm like, bye, I'm out of here. But like you get old enough and you realize that like something being tough is just day one. Like it never gets easier. So I was, I wanted it in a different kind of way this time. I was ready to stick it in and not stop till I got it, uh, which is something I was lacking, frankly, uh, when I was younger. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Hey there, this is Christina Gonzalez, and I'm so excited for you to check out my new podcast, Politics of Food. On this show, we explore the political, economic, and social implications of food creation and consumption, both locally and worldwide. Should we eat first or should we protest first? Like, okay, (laughs) let's organize, let's talk to the press, let's get our word out, and then let's sit down and eat. Follow Politics of Food with Christina Gonzalez at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. This is... um... This reminds me, I feel like this is in the Jordan Peele aesthetic of horror. Is that fair to say? Um, I have, no, (laughs) No, there is no ooh. There is literally no ooh because I'm a massive fan of Jordan Peele. So let me say that first and foremost. There's no ooh. Okay. My, you're, you're get the, the, here's my therapy. The only reaction you're getting, right? Because you probably know when the trailer came out, we got slammed um, by a lot of folk who, you know, assumed that this show was um, something they've seen before. Um, and I guess what I would say about that is, I, my hope is, I think if it's, if it's triggering anything in me, my hope is that we get to a place where the sandbox, especially in horror, is so big that yeah. there's not only like one name, Do you know what I mean? Because that's the thing. Like, I think there are every day there's like a thousand white haunted house things that come out a day. And I can't tell one from the other. I'm like, didn't I just, I watched that. I seriously, I know I watched that. Wait, wait, so are you a gigantic horror fan? Huge. Yeah. Yeah. Since I was a, since I was a kid. See, Uh, I'm not a horror fan. And, and uh, you call it a horror. I haven't, I didn't see it. I didn't see Saw. I think the last horror movie outside of Jordan Peele that I watched was like Blair Witch Project. Because generally, I don't want that. Like, there's that adrenaline rush <laughs> thing that horror fil- film fans want, right? And you're not I, into it. I don't need that. I love adrenaline, but I don't need that, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, the freak is going to cut them in half, and then it's bloody. And You know, and, I, don't and, like, I don't like that stuff either. Okay. I hate, so, I, in fact, so, I don't like that stuff. And the, and, so what's the horror that you love? 
I love like, like particularly like 1960s, 1970s, slow burn type shit. Like I love Rosemary's Baby is one of my favorite films of all time. The Exorcist, which maybe folks wouldn't consider to be a slow burn, although I, it, it's quite methodical for the first like 45 minutes until it's not. Uh, Don't Look Now, um, Possession. There's many, many movies. And then also films like domestic thrillers, Deliverance, Straw Dogs, those kinds of films. I love those I too. Like, I remember seeing Rosemary's Baby at film forum many years ago just because like everyone been talking about this picture for 50 60 years let me go and i was maybe it didn't i was like that's it that's it like cause, cause <laughs> hey it, it you had, said you didn't want adrenaline now you're complaining that you didn't get adrenaline <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you just can't be satiated that's a, what you're it's saying a different time it's a different time i mean you know the i i i held off on seeing get out for as long as I could, because I'm like, Jordan's great, but I really honestly was not into Key and Peele. I was a Chappelle guy, and they called it horror, and I'm like, I don't really like horror. And people kept saying, it's not really horror. And I think that word is polarizing in that some people, a lot of people will be like, oh, that it's not for me. And Get Out and Us are not horror in terms of like, they won't repel you, they won't make you throw up. There's not that sort of like, saw chainsaw sort of thing that'll throw you off and you're it i i don't think you're derivative i think you're in the same neighborhood and aesthetic of you're playing with horror but you're not supernatural you're not you know freaky you're not blood splattered well that's it i mean that's a huge compliment frankly to be in that neighborhood so so thank you and i i i did go see get out immediately and i loved it i mean it's one of my favorite movies um, I, the interesting thing about this is I haven't been calling the show a horror show this entire time. I've been calling it a terror show because I think terror has a, I know you, you see, you think it's a cheesy ploy. No, no, <laughs> but it's no. True. It's it has a different, you're laughing. It has a, it's not cheesy. I think it's funny. You're like, no, 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 it's terror. Like, it, uh, <laughs> no, wait, before, nobody gives a shit. I can say it. No, it's up there. Like, no, it's not. It's try. It's this or that. So it doesn't matter what I call it. But I do think terror has a different ring in the ear than horror. No? Well, absolutely. Horror has all these associations and all this baggage and all this. It is a genre. Terror just is is it's not a genre. Like I don't know what does that what does that mean? Like yeah. I, I guess he says I'm gonna be terrified, and I am. <laughs> you know, I mean you definitely you, you definitely have something of the rhythm of terror or horror, right? Where we're like going along and then you know the stakes are raising the danger's coming and then suddenly like you know there's a man moving in the dark and you're like oh my god what's gonna happen to- don't go in the basement oh my god <laughs> i mean listen i i uh, what we tried the ambition anyway what we were trying to do was um was to root it in something deeply human first yeah. i mean i'm a big yeah. believer we used to say this in the writer's room what scares us more that sound in the basement you can't explain or that neighbor down at the end of the street who's been staring at your house for longer than they should and in our in all of our cases it was always that neighbor so by focusing the horror on something that felt very human first and then letting the other components kind of come from that that was that was the goal let me i i, I want to just pin this little moment before you go back to your show get out Yes. What's better, the ending they gave us or the alternate ending? 
I mean, here's the thing. I, I applaud both. I loved the ending. I really did. I actually loved the ending that he went with. I thought it was fantastic. And frankly, I'd been holding my breath the entire movie. So it was lovely <laughs> like, release. to release. Um, so I like that it happened. I would be very curious to see the ending as written as well, yeah. just because I love a great 70s, like ambiguous ending. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would have been down for that, frankly. I, I, I wish they had gone with the original ending where he gets arrested, arrested and goes I to know. prison. I, and we're like, no! I mean, like, you're standing over a dead white girl. How, <laughs> how, you, go, how you get out of that? And Lil Rel shows up. Come on, hey, the cops are coming. You're yeah, going to prison but it for the worked. rest of your life. It worked. I, I cheered, actually. When he came out of that car, I cheered. I know you everybody do, else. Yeah. Um, I guess Gild the Lily of the Jordan Peele... Uh, uh, comparison when you cast the same actress from... Uh, but here's from- the thing, I didn't even know that. People don't think about the fact that, like, these things are all happening at the same time. So I think, like, Us came out maybe... I don't know time anymore after pandemic. I don't know what time is, but like, I right. would want to say halfway through our writer's room process, that movie came out. So we were further and far enough along in the process. Um, you were already... You had, you had cast her before Us came out? No, but we were already working on the show. And then, by the way, when she came to when that name came to me, it came to me as the star of The Lion King on Broadway. That's how you were like, Shahadi is a musical theater. She's an actress. She's amazing. And I haven't been, you know, when you're making a show, you're making a show. You're not watching anything. You're literally deep in the thing. So I see this amazing talent who I think is a Broadway star. And it didn't matter what she was in because I saw the tape and she can kill you with just a glance and she was cast. So it was really the best person it ended up being. She, no, she's great. She's great. She's great. Um, the white people in this are really evil. And it's great <laughs> to like, real. I mean, like, they're not just like reacting. They are methodical. Like, we need to do whatever we can to get rid of these black people. And the women are really driving the men like be more racist. I mean, and they say the N-word, they tell nigger jokes. Like, it, it's, it, did you have, I wonder how. A fear that white folks would hate it? <laughs> no, no, not that. The okay. actors, did, did the, well, I'm curious about that, but did the actors have any sort of reticence or were there actors who were like, oh, I don't want to do that or just like not wanting to be just like overtly hardcore racist assholes. I will say it was, it was definitely hard for folk. Um, It was, it was, it was easier for some, I won't tell you who, no, (laughs) but it was, but it was hard for folk. And they, they, that's the thing I hadn't actually intended on because I knew what we were putting the family through. So I kept thinking about like, all right, at the end of the day, we got to make sure to just put a net around Deborah and Ashley and Melody and Shahadi. But I hadn't really extended that out to thinking, well, wait a minute on the, the people perpetuating the kind of the violence emotionally too are having their own relationship to it as well. And so there'd be all sorts of interesting conversations. I mean, there were conversations with folks who are part of a mob scene um, who, when we would end the the thing and call cut, they'd be crying, you know? And it was like, so it was pretty powerful um, on both sides to see. So so you said that you, you cast a net. So there were ways that you were providing a sort of human blanket yes. or something for yes. folks to like, I, I know that was tough what you just did. I know that's not who you really are. And yes. like, like, what, like, what did you do? Like, what was that? 
I mean, from day one, we had, we, our motto was like to create a safe space for dangerous things to happen. If you, you can't have a dangerous space and with dangerous things happening, cause then it's just, what is that? It's like a, a bomb. So we had to make sure things were safe. We kept, you know, the, we kept the set small. We kept things contained. Only people who had to be there had to be there. Uh, we would have an intimacy coordinator depending on the scene. I don't know how far you've gone into the show, but there are scenes that are rather, um, you know, uh, difficult. And so we always made sure, and then even with our directors, I mean, I think episode five is one of the most challenging episodes, particularly for Deborah in the show. And I have to call out our director, Janixa Bravo, who directed that episode. And she and I made it our business to just wrap Deborah in safety, wrap the set in safety, and just make sure everyone felt um, safe so they could do their best work uh, and not take it home. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamine a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is mostly secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from tinderfoot tv campside media and iheart podcasts radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Allison Pill is the white leader of the neighborhood, of the racism of the neighborhood. Um, Shahadi, it- ca- Shahadi calls her the Optimus Prime of Karens. That's, 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 Shahadi termed that. That's Shahadi's phrase, which I love. <laughs> what was it like for her? I mean, like, she's really the queen clansman racist in this whole thing in this whole thing i mean the thing about Alison pill well a she's just a very lovely sweet canadian woman so there's none of that there but she's also just an absolute pro i mean that's the thing about her too when we saw the tape she's fearless so she was going to just come at this and devour it no matter what it is and she doesn't take it on it's that this is the role <laughs> this is what it calls for she's meticulous i mean i would be getting and i know i'm not speaking out of school i'm not going to embarrass her but like 25 page emails about a scene from allison pill because she is dug in and done the work so like that for me i mean she's just she's the, she's a pro as you alluded to do you worry about what will white people, white potential viewers of the show feel? There's almost, as far as I can see, there's no savior. Everyone in this is just racist and overtly racist. And I mean, they get no, the white people get no breaks. I mean, like. (laughs) 
here's the thing about that. I, uh, well, so my first part of the thing is no, I don't feel a particular need to kind of, I don't give a lot of thought to sort of educating, um, white people. Cause it's not, I don't feel like it's my job to or do comforting so. them or yeah, or comforting them. I don't think that's my job either. Like they can comfort themselves. They're big, <laughs> but like, but I also Go wasn't watch literally anything else. And you're I also was, wasn't particularly interested in centering, um, centering a kind of whiteness that we're used to seeing all the time. Right. Like, I mean, even when the white character is anti-heroic, there's something heroic and there's always this other thing. And I just wasn't interested in seeing that. And that's so rarely how it presents itself to us is that, you know, that in these kinds of um, experiences. So, Yeah. Mm. You really got at the core of some of the racism when one of the male racist characters says that he's afraid that the daughter, who's fast, will go and have sex with her son, right? And that that and the loss of money. They don't they don't talk about the loss of money that much, but I think that lies heavily in people's minds. And they'll be like, look. I'm not racist. I just don't want my house to lose uh, its value. Like, well, you are racist. But, like, I'm afraid (laughs) that my son will have sex with that black girl and then we'll have black in our family, right? That's one of the core sort of planks of this whole thing for them. Yeah, there are layers. (laughs) (laughs) There are layers. (laughs) You use... um, music really well in this and really dramatically um and not just the songs that come in over the final credits but like within the episode um was that was that you or do you have a music coordinator who's helping you with that we had fantastic music coordinators uh randall poster and megan courier were our our amazing um music soups and uh you know, the interest, that was a, a discovery, actually, the musical side of it, because from the beginning, from just a cinematic part of it, we'd always thought of like the show as a 1950s show shot through a 1970s lens. Okay. So that affected the way we framed it. It affected like the, the use of cameras and the kind of the look, the feel. But when we extended that out to the soundscape and thought, well, wait a minute, the music should also then, because no, no offense to people making music in 1953, but that was a deeply shitty year for music. Like, <laughs> Just the worst. So if I was actually stuck in 1953 with music, you would not watch it. So it was actually fun to be like, oh, actually, no, we can throw in some 60s, some 70s and have a good time um, sonically. I mean, there's something about the 60s and 70s where the music starts to be um, much more, let's say, expansive to where it, it, it still lives on. It still influences us. I don't know how much from the 50s yeah. continue outside of the jazz. Uh, out of the popular music, how much continues to live on. No. No. Um, There's this great moment when uh, the family wakes up and there's all these racist, you know, Piccadilly dolls. (laughs) Got to hear you talk about the show. I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) Is that what we did? (laughs) I mean, but it's really beautiful. It's like an art piece. I'm like, well, you're like, you know, you got to make it look cool. Like, fuck it. I'll roll with it. Thank you for the. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the decorations guys. Yeah. But you dig into this way that like racism will drive you crazy. Yes. Yeah. Um, It will. And I, again, that's something I hadn't really seen. Like what is the concomitant 
impact. I mean, let me just in my own life, here's something I realized actually just this past year, which is, is on its face. Absolutely crazy that I, that I didn't know I do this and that I do this. So I realized over the summer (laughs) that whenever a cop pulls up alongside me and either mad dogs me or looks at me too long or does something in some effect to like, you know, I don't know, scare me, whatever, but it always happens. I pretend like I'm on a phone call so I'll start like pretending like I'm talking and gesticulating with my hands in this. And I, the thought process being that if I'm in a phone call right now, this person's less likely to fuck with me is the thought process. And I didn't even realize I did it until this summer. And it's something I've been doing. And when it dawned on me that I've now created a behavior to cope with something that I shouldn't have to cope with, this is not normal. That is entirely insane, actually, that I've adopted behaviors to survive potentially getting shot by someone who's actually supposed to protect me. That's insane. So there is a subtle layer of insanity, I think, all the time. It's pervasive. For more from me and little Marvin talking about them, one of the great new shows of the year, join us over at patreon.com slash show. Thanks so much to little Marvin for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, Graville Calais, Michelle Brenda Cox, Kathy F., Dr. Keena Murphy, Earl Dorsey, and Theotokis. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. This show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garfano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy. And we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy. And I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer. Because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.